bringing order to the intersection of public, private, and civic. This is Infrastructure Momentum Makers. Welcome to Infrastructure Momentum Makers, presented by Ansarada, the only software solution purpose-built to securely run complex and high-value infrastructure procurement. All your infrastructure procurement processes in one place, all in order. And join me, Ratna Amin, as I speak with the movers and shakers at the intersection of the public, private, and civic sectors about the latest breakthroughs and developments in the world of infrastructure. Today, I'm so excited to be joined by co-founder and principal at Partners in Public Innovation, Ryan Hunter. Founded in 2022, PPI's mission is to transform public services by empowering staff to create a culture of continuous improvement. Ryan is here today to discuss how PPI helps public leaders solve their trickiest problems and use data to fix broken processes, plus so much more. Thanks so much for joining us, Ryan. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Ryan, for having me. I'm so glad to be here. You are the co-founder and principal of Partners in Public Innovation. To start off, what does PPI do? How did it come about? And what's your day-to-day like? Yeah, absolutely. So I think to tell this story, I want to tell you a little bit about kind of the origins of the program that came before PPI. So I worked in the controller's office in the city and county of San Francisco, and I I worked in a group that functioned like internal management consultants in the city. And when I first got there, we used to have deputy directors coming to us and they would say something like, hey, I just became the deputy director of this department and people are complaining. We've got a huge backlog. Applications take way too long. What we do is bureaucratic and messy and I don't even understand it. Can you help us untangle this mess? And I did, when I first got there, what I had been taught to do in grad school, which was I talked to a whole bunch of people and I gathered and analyzed some data. And then I wrote that all up and I made a big diagram in Visio. And if people were particularly unfortunate, it might come with a memo that had eight recommendations for how to fix your broken whatever it is. And then I would hand that to people and I would say, here, here's a picture of your broken thing. And they'd say, great, now what do I do? And I would say, well, I gave you a memo. Do the eight things that I said on page two. They'd say, thank you very much. And then they'd take my memo and they would go put it on the shelf next to their desk and kind of keep doing what they were doing. So I got pretty tired of that after a while. And we tried to figure out what's a different way that would get people to actually change and actually produce better services for the people that they serve. So we found people that were doing lean work in government and learned a lot from them and really reevaluated what we were doing and why it wasn't working. I realized it took a certain amount of hubris for me to be Mr. Smarty Pants consultant and waltz into a, a place for eight weeks and tell people that have been doing that work for 20 years I knew better than they did how to fix what was going on. Often that wasn't true. There was just stuff that they knew about their work that I couldn't possibly know in in eight weeks. But the really bitter pill that I had to swallow was that even if I was right, it didn't matter if they didn't trust me, if they didn't want to change, if 
They thought that efficiency was code word for I'm coming after your job. If the leader was invested in change, but her middle managers and line staff who actually do the work didn't want to change, any of that stuff would sink it. So what we started to do instead was I would go into those situations and when the department head says, oh, my thing is a huge mess, I started saying, that's great. I can't fix that for you. No consultant actually can fix that for you. What I can do is work with your staff to think about how you solve this problem, to teach problem solving, be an expert in problem solving. But I need your tax assessor or nurse or HR analyst to be the expert in property tax assessment or patient care or hiring because they actually do this work every day and they know what's wrong and how to fix it. So we started doing things that way. We built a program that was half training and capacity building and then half doing facilitated work directly with staff. But that work doesn't look like I come in and recommend what to do. The work looks like convening groups of people to work together on a common problem. How do we work together to reduce time to hire? That all turns out to be much more difficult than writing you the memo with the eight things you're doing wrong, but it's also much more impactful because when the people who are actually doing the work are the ones who are leading the development and implementation of the solutions, they don't resist. You get to be the champion for them and for the work that they're doing. And I always like to say that now we have obviously always a goal of making some measurable improvement in the core services of the folks that we're working with. But my meta goal is always something bigger, which is to help the team that we're working with continue to innovate and do their work differently even after we're gone. So that's what we're really shooting for. Wow, that's awesome. Ryan, can you tell our audience a little bit about the different offerings that PPI provides from leadership training to crisis management and everything in between? I like to say there's a lot of process improvement methodologies out there. People talk about Lean or Six Sigma or Agile or human-centered design. I like to say that all of these things, if people are really doing them well, boil down to the same set of stuff, which is what's the goal that you're trying to achieve? Can we get clear about what that thing is? And then how are you doing at that goal? Like what's your current performance? And then let's do some stuff to actually make that goal better. Our services fall into those buckets, right? So we do like strategic planning and goal setting for organizations to help them understand like what is it that they're trying to achieve. And then once they know that, we're trying to help them think about how are you doing at that goal right now? Okay, you want to hire people faster? How long does it take you to hire people today? Let's get really clear on what that measure is. Let's make sure that you have the data to um, understand how you're doing. And then once you know how you're doing, where you want to be, then we ask a lot of questions about what's causing that gap. Like, okay, what's stopping you from hiring someone in two months instead of 10? Let's dig into that. And that's where we come in with groups of folks, staff. We help them take apart the process that they're working on, think collaboratively about solutions to that thing. We try stuff and we measure it and we see if it gets better. That's kind of the core of what we're doing. That's awesome. In your opinion, what's the biggest challenge that you face in training those who work in public services? I'll tell you a few things that you might assume are some of our biggest challenges and are not. The things that I think most challenge a lot of leaders, right? It's not about 
money because we really focus on doing stuff that's a low cost or no cost. It's not about frontline staff. We hear a lot from all angles about folks who don't want to change, about sort of jaded line staffs. But I don't experience that to be the major obstacle. And it's not about like antiquated technology or systems. I'm happy to say more about any of those things. But the things that I, I think are real challenges are it really takes leaders who want to make significant change. I think it takes a certain amount of courage from a leader to admit, hey, the thing we're doing right now isn't working and we need to do something really different. And maybe I need to give up some of my control to empower my staff to be able to tell me what the what the change is that's needed and be able to take some chances about like, hey, what if we removed this requirement that we have right now? Like, how would that affect our application volume? And if you're a leader that's super risk averse, then sometimes that can be pretty challenging. I mean, I like to tell people that there's real risks in the status quo. So, you know, you can choose the risk of changing or the risk of staying the same. But my experience is when you can have a leader that is really committed to figuring this stuff out, then a lot of those other things are achievable, right? I can push through with a strong leader line staff who are not bought in at the beginning, but it's really hard to work with a leader who's not really bought into change. I don't know that people need to commit tons of money but they do need to commit a lot of time and energy. And it often comes exactly at the time when time and energy feel scant, right? People don't call us when everything is rosy. People call us when the boat is sinking and they're bailing furiously. And I have to tell them, okay, well, I need you to have some of your staff stop bailing out the boat and come help me fix the hull. That also takes some courage for leaders to do. Do you help the leaders find that courage, Ryan? Do you find yourself coaching leaders? I'm sure many of our listeners are leaders who are thinking, do I have that courage to lead change? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, we're providing coaching support to folks throughout the engagements. I mean, in some ways, I think that's my most important role, right, is working with the leaders that are the real champions and sponsors for these efforts and helping them think through how to lead. And how to have that courage. I mean, you have to sort of jump off the diving board and let figure the thing out. And sometimes it gets worse before it gets better, right? I mean, if you take some people away from bailing, you might have a little while when the boat fills up with a little bit more water than it did before. But we're also always looking for things that help those changes and those transitions get a little bit easier. When we're finding process improvement, opportunities. I'm always looking around for the thing that's going to get people their time back. The, the staff who are in the process, get them their time back the fastest. Because if I can figure out like, hey, maybe we can safely put aside, you know, collecting these fees if they're under $10. And I'm going to get all your staff like three hours a week back that way. All of a sudden, you can start to open up a little bit of oxygen, right? give people some time that they can reinvest into other kinds of solutions, get the boulder rolling down the hill that way. That's so insightful, Ryan. In your opinion, how can public entities put their employees in the best chance to succeed in the first place? Like what changes do they need to make to the way they're structured or the way they function? Big picture. I think that we really need to see our staff as assets, 
not just in some like big picture principles way, but in really practical ways every day. And I think that means kind of finding ways to sort of structurally get them to have ideas and contribute to the work. We did some work when I was in San Francisco still on time to hire at the San Francisco Public Utilities Commission in civil service hiring, because literally every client that I've ever interacted with, it was one of their number one complaints. So we wound up doing a lot of that work. We worked with the Public Utilities Commission on their hiring process. And when we came in, they had no idea how to measure time to hire. Their data was spread across five different hiring systems. We had to help them wrangle all of that information, helping them build some hiring dashboards. And it wasn't until after we did that that we understood that, oh, the previous year they had approved 600 positions to fill and had filled 250 of them. It doesn't take a statistician to understand that you can't do that for very long without having major problems. And they did have major problems in the organization. Their vacancy rate was climbing and climbing. Hiring managers, in order to get around the like ballooning hiring process, do you know what they did? They figured out, they're smart people, they figured out that if they just hired people into temporary positions, that they could get them hired in half the time, which is great until you realize that then HR has to hire that person twice once as a temporary employee, and then again a year later as a permanent employee. So it just drove HR like deeper and deeper into a backlog. So then their staff were unmotivated. People thought they were the worst department. Staff quit. When staff quit, they became further behind. When they hire new staff who still, you know, are, are not veterans, they need to be trained. They were just like caught in this cycle, right? But we started working with them, helping them measure what was going on them get a, get a handle on that and then doing this work of like putting their team together to take their process apart piece by piece and understand like what drives time to hire like sit down with hiring managers and listen to them and there was a moment in one of our working sessions with them that I always think about when we were getting people to make a future state map so we had mapped the current state of their hiring process and we were asking them to rebuild their hiring process in a way that shortened the time to hire. There was an external stakeholder that wasn't working with us. And we said, you can't cut from that person's time. You can only fix yourself. So you have to get this time back, but you can't take it from over here. You can only take it from the parts that are in your control. But this one woman in the session, she kept saying that if she made this change, she would save two weeks from this other place. And I kept saying, no, 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 you can't do that. Only fix yourself. You can't fix them. Until finally, after she said this like three times, I was like, what are you talking about? What do you mean if you did it this way, they would return this thing to you in a day instead of two weeks? She told me that issue was an external department that had to give their approval to like, yes, you can move forward with this hire. And she said, oh, because if we change this thing, I would know what the job was that I was hiring for. And I said, oh, what you've been doing is taking, getting the hiring manager to fill out a form, telling him that, that he filled out the form wrong and fixing it, 
And then turning around and sending that form to this external person who then tells you that you filled it out wrong and you should fix it. But nowhere in there did you understand what's the position you're hiring for and what's the best way to fill it. And so what she was saying was, my job isn't about getting people to fill out a form. It's about working with a hiring manager to figure out what she needs in this position that she's trying to hire for, and then helping her translate that into HR lingo and being the advocate for that hiring manager throughout this hiring process. That's the sort of higher calling of an HR analyst. But that wasn't what those frontline staff thought their job was. But putting them in that process and getting them to think about why they do what they do and giving them not just permission, but encouragement to do that and to think about how to do it better. That, to your original question, is what it looks like and get that out of your line staff. And in fact, later on in the process, we have a tool that we call a huddle, which is like a way that you check in on a daily or weekly cadence with frontline staffs that you show them what's going on in the process and elicit their feedback and get ideas. And that same staff, you know, later on had an idea that I would never as an external consultant have had. In fact, the leadership of that group would never have had to say, hey, why do I have to schedule fingerprinting appointments for new hires? It, it would just be easier if they could schedule them themselves. And so she did a little bit of work to figure out how to set that up. And people had to give her time and space to do that work that wasn't in her job description. But after that, you know, she cut a week off time to hire. But you've got to create the space. You've got to help people think about their jobs that way. And then you have to create the space for people to do it. Because if you squash ideas when they come up, people don't have to be told to shut up very many times before they do it. Ryan, how does PPI use data to help your clients drive innovation? Has the data you utilize shown you anything surprising? The first question I ask is, what's the goal you're trying to achieve? But then the second question I ask is, how are you measuring that goal? Because what I find is if people have a goal, but they can't measure it, then they don't actually have a goal yet. They say, oh, my hiring process sucks. So what does sucks mean? Right? Like it means it's too long. Do you have poor quality candidates? It means that you have equity outcomes that you're worried about. What is it? But then the way that you have to answer that question is with data. You have to know, like, you're worried about candidate quality. How are we going to measure your candidate quality? And wrangling that is always uh, among the first things that we do. People always learn new things from that data. But I will say this. Sometimes that can be sort of big, robust, heavy lift kinds of work. Sometimes that's what's important and needed in that PUC project. We spent months helping them connect data together from five different systems to get an end-to-end -end picture of time to hire. Sometimes you can gather data in a really lo-fi kind of way. We did this work with trade shops in a maintenance yard. We needed to understand from them, when you get in a work order for a repair, is it actionable for you? Or do you have to go and gather a bunch more data before you can go deploy a carpenter to fix that thing? And you can get data from something as simple as we just gave these guys for a week a sheet of paper 
like a little table that we printed for them. And you just said, every time a work order comes in, just write down the work order number and then write down, yeah, I could send my guys immediately or no, I couldn't. And if I couldn't, why couldn't you do it? That was not, you know, I didn't have to wrangle their data system for months. I just got these guys to write this down on a piece of paper for a week and then spent a couple hours sticking it in the spreadsheet. But that gave us what we needed to understand, hey, there's really three reasons that 80% of these work orders get delayed. Then that gives you what you need to be able to drive the improvement. That's a great story, Ryan. And what I hear in that is permission for everybody to be simple and really focus on solving the problem. Yeah, I don't care about data for data's sake, right? I care about data to the extent it tells us how we're doing and it gives us the information we need to solve a problem, right? So whatever you got to do to figure that out, even if your data's messy or not perfect, just, yeah, what do you need to be able to answer those questions? And let's help you get it. What are some concrete ways that better training and better systems can benefit the average citizen? I think I mentioned earlier about starting with why. This is what I'm always working with our clients on. I experience usually leaders to understand why they do what they do, but often the sort of middle managers and line staff may not. I'm helping people think about how does your work serve the public? Why have we funded you to do the thing that you do? Why do you exist? I coached a woman years ago whose job was to open the mail in a, a facility that processed applications from seniors for Medi-Cal and CalFresh. And she led a team of four or five entry-level folks. Literally, their job was to open envelopes and scan pieces of paper, right? And it took five days from the time they received a piece of mail to when that what was in that piece of mail got to an eligibility worker to process that person's application. But helping those guys to say, hey, that letter isn't a letter, not a piece of paper. It's a senior somewhere who is hungry and needs food stamps. So every hour that that letter is like sitting in a tray and you're not doing anything with it is an hour that that person's not getting food. So what can we do? How would we re rebuild this in a way that letter doesn't have to sit? I want to go back to a point you made earlier, which is that technology is rarely one of your biggest challenges in doing this work or rarely the problem. Tell us when you would encourage or do encourage organizations to leave behind their old outdated systems in favor of new ones. Yeah. When I train folks, I ask people, hey, how many of you have been a part of a major IT implementation? And everybody raises their hand. And then I say, so for how many of you did that big IT implementation solve all your problems? And every person puts their hand down. And I think, that's funny. Why is that? Right? Like, we, these are big deals. We spend a lot of money on them, but they don't seem to be solving our problems. And I think that the piece there is that, and I promise I'm coming back around to what is the value of technology, which I, I do think is valuable. I experience a lot of folks to have a sort of knee-jerk reaction to like, oh, all our stuff is in paper and that's terrible. Or my system has this old interface with a DOS prompt and that's terrible. And like, it just needs to be new. When, <laughs> when I started talking about this kind of thing, I thought I was throwing IT directors under the bus. And then what I realized is IT directors would tell me, oh my gosh, I've been telling all of my clients that 
for years, because what's really needed is to understand why you want that technology in the first place. What is it that's not working right now that you want that piece of technology to do for you? We did a project a few years ago with the clerk of the Board of Supervisors of Marin County. They were looking to procure a new agenda management system. So they, they wanted a new IT system that was going to help their clerk agendize items for the Board of Supervisors and manage public information about the board meetings and the dissemination of minutes. To Marin County's credit, and this is what they've since adopted as a countywide policy, they said, we're not going to do IT procurement before we look at the underlying business process. So we came together with the clerk of the board staff and we helped them look at what they were doing. And then we helped them figure out how they could eliminate 85% of the paper in their process and how they could publish board minutes in one day instead of six to eight weeks before they ever implemented or procured a new software. Because the reason those things weren't happening had nothing to do with their software. It had to do with how they were prioritizing their time and what they thought their job was and what goals they had been given or not given. Once we had done all of that, we also had a, enough understanding of what was happening that we knew the things that were real problems in the software. Like, oh, you can't track the status of this approval. And that gave us what we needed to help them scope an RFP. So like, what actually are the IT requirements that need to go into that procurement? So they could actually buy a system that would really meet their needs, not just one where they're crossing their fingers and hoping that stuff will magically get better on the other end. I think there's real value in updating all those old systems, but I think you have to do the sort of legwork of understanding the nitty gritty of your process first in order to get value out of those IT procurements. You've been in this field for a while now, Ryan. What are the biggest lessons we can learn from other parts of the world when it comes to having an efficient and effective public workforce? From my perspective, the obvious one that we rely on all the time is Japan, because the sort of backbone of the, the improvement methodologies that we're using is Lean, which came originally out of auto manufacturing, actually, and Toyota, but has been now adapted really widely in healthcare. So in the healthcare sector, you go into almost any hospital in this country, and they're going to have some kind of lean Kaizen continuous improvement team that's using some of those principles to improve patient care, to reduce errors. And then now in, in government, and we've done a lot of work to sort of take those manufacturing focused concepts and Japanese concepts and package them in a way that makes sense for sort of white collar government workforce. So the other place that I think there's really interesting work happening in the sort of public sector in particular is the UK. There's a group there called the Behavioral Insights Team that does behavioral science, you know, behavioral psychology kinds of research into things. You know, how do I get people to sign up for this thing? How do I get people to pay their taxes on time? How do we think about nudge frameworks in order to get people to take the action by default that we think is the best outcome? I like to say that the work that we do now, I like to steal liberally from all of those different process improvement methodologies, figure out what works for folks in government. Brian, you're applying some of these methods in your work. Are you seeing the development of these kinds of departments or divisions in U.S. public agencies? Are they becoming leaner overall? Are we 
getting better at behavioral insights writ large across public agencies? Sometimes. I would say it's far from uniform, but there are certainly folks who are doing it. I would say that the real challenge is to do this at a big agency. You need at least some staff who are dedicated to this work full time in order to really commit and dedicate resources behind the movement. But there's a failure mode that I see some folks get into, which is that they then say, well, like continuous improvement is the job of that team over there and not the job of my division. Innovation is those guys. It's not my team. We just turn the wheel. The real challenge, right, is that you do need some staff who, in, in a big organization, you need staff who are dedicated to this work, but then their job is really to build that culture into other places. And you don't need a ton of folks. I figured out that we were building the Lean program in San Francisco alongside a bunch of other work. And none of us at the time, even myself, were dedicated to it full time. So I think I figured out once that we were spending about, we built the program that we built there with about two and a half FTE over the period of, of a few years. You've got smart, dedicated people. You can do a lot. That's very encouraging. What makes you most optimistic at this moment about the future of public work? I think the thing that makes me optimistic and the thing that keeps me in this work is people, is public servants. I, periodically in my career, I've had folks encourage me to go and do this work in the private sector. I suppose I'm a private sector consultant, but I mean doing this work for private sector companies. It's certainly a bigger market. It would be more lucrative. And I just have no interest in that. I'm in this to help provide better public services. And my experience working with staff on the ground is that that's what they want too. People are in public service because they care. Even sometimes they don't know that they care. Lots of these folks could be doing more lucrative work in some other place, but really want to do good work, provide good parks or libraries or effective tax collection or whatever it is to fund public services. And I don't know, in the public sector, we don't have the sort of luxury, for want of a better word, of um, competition like the private sector does to drive improvement. But what we have are um, committed, mission-driven people who want to make a difference in the world. I think as long as there's those folks around, we're going to keep finding ways to improve. That is very optimistic and encouraging. Brian, I have two lightning round type questions that we ask every guest, and then we can close. So I'm sure the work you do can be stressful. Where do you find order in the chaos? Our orientation now toward this work is that I can't solve problems, that only the people that actually own that work and do it every day can solve problems. When I'm, we're doing this work with folks, nudging people and trying to help coach them to see things. But at the end of the day, I really do believe the solutions have to ultimately come from somebody else. I think in my best sort of Zen moments, I appreciate that, right? My role as a coach and an encourager, I have to trust the seeds I plant and the way that I, I help people think, get them to change. And they often do, but that helps me. I'm a little bit of a control freak by nature, but just to understand what's already true, which is that I'm not actually in control of the work we do with clients that they are. That's both uh, terrifying and freeing at the same time. 
That makes a lot of sense. And I think it's really profound realizing that you're not in control and that others have the power, the knowledge, the agency to solve the problem. And you can be a partner in that, not have to take it all on yourself. Yeah. Earlier in my career, I really tried to force change in places that didn't want it or weren't ready for it. And that was destructive, right? And now I, I trust people to take on the change that works for them and that they're ready for. I try anyway. <laughs> we are all a work in progress. Ryan, one last question before I let you go. Is there any major infrastructure project anywhere in the world that is on your bucket list to go and see one day? Oh, man. I think it would be fun to see the Panama Canal. I can't quite wrap my head around that human beings did this thing. So to see connecting two oceans, I think would be would be pretty wild. Ryan, thank you for this conversation and such thoughtful answers and sharing your experience. We all have a relationship with government and the work that it does. So it's really important that we all understand how to make it better. Thanks. It's been really a pleasure to, to be here. Our guest today, once again, was Ryan Hunter. Thanks so much for joining us, Ryan, and telling us about the fascinating work that PPI is doing. It's been a real pleasure. And thank you all, for, once again, for listening to our show. If you're enjoying it, please make sure to leave a review so more people can find us. Until next time, I'm Ratna Amin, and this has been Infrastructure Momentum Makers, presented by Ansarada. <laughs>